Hello and welcome to our podcast, Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Elisa and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today the title of our episode is Bars for the People. In this episode, we will be discussing the life of Langston Hughes, who was one of the most well-known voices of the Harlem Renaissance. While he is most greatly known for his poetry and various writings, he was also a social activist for the Black community. To understand in full context the different concepts we're going over today, you should check out our last two episodes. Okay, this is yet another episode where I'm going to try not to fangirl too hard. I love Langston Hughes, literally everything about him. So let's take a second to set up his background and whatnot. First of all, his parents split when he was pretty young, so he was mainly raised in the town of Lawrence, Kansas, by his grandmother. His grandmother was pretty cool. Her husband, aka Hughes' grandfather, had actually died during the infamous 1859 John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, which took place in what is now known as West Virginia, at least according to the introduction of the book titled The Collected Poems of Langston Hughes, edited by Arnold Rampersod, who will come up a lot today, an associate edited by David Russell, which if you've ever studied Hughes in school, you actually probably already have this book. And if you don't know anything about John Brown, don't worry, my friends, you will at some point because you know we're going to cover them one of these days. But anyway, his grandma was also an activist herself, and she is a large part of why Langston grew up with such a love for black people and black culture instilled in him. He also found his love for literature and books very early on, too. In his book, The Big C, which was an autobiography, he wrote, I was unhappy for a long time and very lonesome living with my grandmother. Then it was that books began to happen to me, and I began to believe in nothing but books and the wonderful world in books, where if people suffered, they suffered in beautiful language, not in monosyllables, as we did in Kansas. Gosh, I mean, even those few lines. He really had such a way with words. Langston attended, for a short period, Columbia University in 1921 and ended his studies there in 1922. He left for multiple reasons. One was that he had only been able to afford to attend that university because his father had helped him with tuition only on the condition that he studied engineering. His father did not support Hughes' aspirations of being a writer. He wanted to see Hughes study a more respectable field. I think that his problems with his father had a tendency of leaking out into his work. For instance, his short story titled Blessed Assurance dealt with these issues regarding a father who struggles to accept his son who has effeminate qualities and is not interested in societally approved manly things. And this is more speculation than something that is overtly proven, but that story definitely carries a lot of objectively similar circumstances that Hugh struggled with in his relationship with his own father. The book also has some other undertones to it, but we will dive into that a bit more later. As for the subject of university, another reason why he eventually dropped out of Columbia was because he had faced some discrimination there too. 
Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense why he ends up leaving. Because, like, he was studying something that he didn't even want to study. And everyone there was mean and racist towards him. So, obviously, he was like, nah, that's definitely not my scene. But this cool cultural boom and appreciation slash celebration of African-American culture that's going down in Harlem right now, though, now that's my scene. He really loved the cultural awakening in Harlem. Hughes had such an affinity for jazz and blues songs that came from that era. He could often be found at nightclubs in order to soak in all of the amazing live music. Which you probably already know this, but he had a music career too. He even composed a few of his own songs. Some even say that his poems carry the same cadence and swing that could be heard in jazz songs. And while he spent time in other parts of the world after that, like in different parts of Europe, and even got a degree from Lincoln University in Pennsylvania in the year 1929, he went back to New York and lived in Harlem as his main home, although he did a lot of traveling in his life. We chose to do a podcast over him right now for a couple of reasons. For the obvious reasons, like we have been staying on this time period, so how could we talk about the Harlem Renaissance and not talk about him? But also, he encapsulates a lot of the elements that we've been bringing up that were pretty prevalent during this movement. For instance, in our episode over Gladys Bentley, which was the episode that we kicked off this Harlem Renaissance series with, we discussed many of the aspects of the queer culture that was present during this time. It is widely speculated that Hughes may have himself been homosexual. He often incorporated queer undertones or topics in his writings, like that story I mentioned just a moment ago, Blessed Assurance. Another issue that the father in that story took with his son was his queerness, and according to the article Closing Time, Langston Hughes and the Queer Poetics of Harlem Nightlife by Shane Vogel, he only ever had one known romantic partner in his life who had been a woman. Outside of that one relationship, though, his sexuality had been questioned as far back as the beginning of his career. He never officially disclosed his sexuality. Now, on the other hand, one of the most highly revered Langston Hughes historians and main editor of the book The Collected Works of Langston Hughes, Arnold Rampersod, takes a different stance on Hughes' sexuality. Rampersod actually published a two-volume biographical series of Hughes' life, so this guy literally wrote the book on Hughes. Rampersod said in his work that it wasn't so much that Hughes was homosexual, but rather he was actually probably asexual and just did not really have or prioritize romantic partners in his life. And you know me in my asexual heart would love for that to be true because Langston Hughes would be a wonderful member of the cake and garlic bread eating ace club. But I gotta be honest with you, I don't think it matters so much that he may or may not have been gay or asexual or whatever else he may have been. First of all, it doesn't matter because he pointedly did not disclose his own sexuality, so therefore it's not really any of our business, but also because he represents something very important to the Harlem Renaissance vibe. And that was his ex- acceptance and comfortability with the topic of homosexuality as well as gender roles. He showed an abundance of casual and subtle knowledge about the queer nightlife of the time period and didn't hold the prejudice that other community leaders had about incorporating an acceptance of queer lifestyle within the broader black culture, which if you've been listening to our last few podcasts, that was a common criticism of the movement. 
Speaking of the last few podcasts, just like Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes had also been one of the people involved with the magazine called Fire, as he took a strong interest in the core objective of this magazine, which was to uplift the voice of young black creators and thinkers. And one thing they wanted to explore in that magazine was queerness and sexual expression in general. Hughes actually personally wrote what was considered to be the magazine's manifesto, which was published in an article in The Nation in 1926. And in regards to black creators, he said that they intended, and this is a quote, to express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. If white people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly too. The tom-tom cries and the tom-tom laughs. If colored people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, their displeasure does not matter either. We build our temples for tomorrow as strong as we know how, and we stand on top of the mountain free within ourselves. Full chef's kiss. And I am not going to talk about fire anymore because if you want to know more, well, freaking go listen to last week because we covered it enough then. But now that I've sufficiently brought back up Zora Neale Hurston, let's talk about his friendship with her because it's really indicative of his personal views. So the two of them were remarkably good pals. They actually road tripped to New York together in Zora's car that she named Sassy Susie, which any of you who checked out that lecture by Cheryl Wall already knew because she talked about that. But yeah, so let's dive into what kind of views that they shared in more detail. If you'll think back to last week, Zora Neale Hurston was big on giving voice to everyday and ordinary black people. And the same can very much be said about Langston Hughes' attitude as well. He felt very strongly that not just elite and well-off black people should be uplifted, but rather black voices in general must be uplifted. I really like this one quote that can be found in the introduction of the collected poems of Langston Hughes. It says, Langston Hughes never sought to be all things to all people, but rather aimed to create a body of work that epitomized the beauty and variety of the African-American and the American experiences, as well as the diversity of emotions, thoughts, and dreams that he saw common in all human beings. Langston had found success very early on in his writing career because of how well he was able to do just that. Most everyone who read his work then and even still to this day was and is moved by his words. His simplistic style appealed to a large audience and had a way of bringing such beauty to ordinary and mundane moments. For example, here's a quote from him. Like a welcome summer rain, humor may suddenly cleanse and cool the earth, the air, and you. Such a simple sentiment and yet powerful in its wake. But what made him even more iconic was his way of bringing great pride to the African-American experience. Take, for instance, his poem called The Negro Speaks of Rivers. Hughes wrote this poem while going past a river, and in a moment of realization, he understood that his soul had known more rivers that his own eyes hadn't seen. The poem was also one of his first works ever published, as well as it being considered as one of his signature poems. To read the first few and most iconic lines from this piece, it reads, I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in my human veins. 
My soul has grown deep like the rivers. This is genuinely an incredibly empowering and wonderful poem to someone who has lived through the Black experience in the United States. It is a way to hold tight to the blood of the heritage that had been attempted to be stripped from the community, as if saying, no matter how hard white supremacy had tried to separate black people from their original practices, their souls had never forgotten all that their ancestors had gone through. If you have not read that full poem before, we strongly encourage that you do so. It is incredibly moving, and to make it easier for you to read it, we're actually going to leave a link in the show notes to help you out. But yeah, so he had this prolific talent of shedding such a positive light on the everyday Black experience. And this sentiment wasn't just in his poetry, he did many other things in his life to emulate this. For instance, he helped write plays that focused on issues within the Black community, and he even tried his hand at screenwriting. Um... Ren, not to change the subject, but like, didn't y'all mention that he was some kind of activist or something earlier? Uh, yeah, I did. Thanks, Mo, for that helpful little segue you just made for me. As Elisa mentioned before, Hughes had found success pretty early on in his career. One thing that was awesome that he did was that he used his platform to cultivate the careers of other writers, specifically young black writers. He didn't just preach about giving a voice to young black people. He did everything in his power to do so within his own means. Take Alice Walker, for example. Not only is she considered to be discovered by by Hughes, but he also served as a great inspiration to her as well. She might sound familiar to you because she's pretty well known within the activist and writing community to this day. She has received the National Book Award for Hardcover Fiction, as well as the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and she coined the term womanist, which is a term that deserves its own podcast at some point. Oh, how I love to foreshadow future podcasts. But anyway, back to the wonderful Langston Hughes. On the same vein of uplifting black culture that he clearly exhibited, he was also very loud about his desire for social change. For instance, there's a piece by him called A New Song, and it ends by proclaiming this, Revolt, arise, the black and white world shall be one, the workers' world, the past is done, a new dream flames. And this quote really drives home a couple of things about Langston Hughes. It really reveals his general distaste of the inequality and division between classes and more pointedly, the class divide he saw under a capitalist and segregated American government. Hughes is also quoted as saying, I swear to the Lord I still can't see why democracy means everybody but me. This disdain of a lack of equality is also echoed in what foreign countries he chose to visit. He spent time in Russia and China, who were both very communistic countries at the time. That being said, Hughes never officially claimed to be a communist, though he consistently found himself sympathizing with the cause. His denial of being a part of the cause likely also had to do with the severe disdain that the larger American population had for it though he did also suggest discomfort at the overall strictness that communism often carried with it. A few more things before we wrap up today. Hughes passed away on May 22nd, 1967. Hey mom, you turned two years old that day. Anyway, at age 66 due to complications from prostate cancer in the state of New York. 
Y'all, I tried to find some criticism of him, but honestly, there's not a ton out there. There are some vague critiques of his work, like Rampersad wrote that there were people who disliked how simplistic his style was. But the critique is kind of pointless in my opinion, because it's really just like a matter of whether or not you prefer simple writing styles or not. Others didn't like that he expressed so much cynical views of the systemic and social racism that was present in America. And again, that one also isn't a great critique. Like, come on, bro. Are you mad because he pointed out that racism sucks and systemic oppression isn't the vibe. Also, like, neither Elisa nor I have proper literary background to be comfortable doing a full critique on his work, and we know where our lane is, so we're gonna stay in it. But overall, most everyone can agree that he is an incredible figure of the Harlem Renaissance and American history in general. And I'm actually gonna let Langston tell you a bit about himself in his own simple and down-to-earth manner, because I think this quote is cute. I live in Harlem, New York City. I am unmarried. I like Tristan Goat's Milk, short novels, lyric poems, heat, simple folk, boats, and bullfights. I dislike Ada, parsnips, long novels, narrative poems, cold, pretentious folk, buses, and bridges. And that is where we're going to end the lecture this week. So we're going to take a break, get some tea, and we'll be right back. And now a word from our sponsors. This week is brought to you by Franklin's Laser Pointer. Do you also have an arch enemy? Do you find yourself haunted by a red dot that moves literally at the speed of light? And no matter how hard you try to catch it, each time you get close enough, it disappears into the night. Well, then you understand the fear that Franklin lives through every day because he knows the red dot is always waiting and watching. If you want to make sure that this foolish fiend can finally be finished by Franklin, you can donate at Ren and Lisa's Ko-Fi account or check out their Patreon. Franklin's Laser Pointer. All right, we're back. And yes, that was really Franklin's meow. Uh, so, Elisa, how are you feeling today? You know, today I'm I'm feeling pretty good. I'm excited. It's slightly rainy today, but um, I think I, I feel well rested. Don't ask me later this week, though. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing, y'all, keep in mind, Elisa and our other roommate, Lena, they're about to adopt a cat together. <laughs> they're about to be cat moms together. I'm so excited. So yes. this time next week, ooh, I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm living for right now. Oh, yeah. Um, Rin, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I will be honest with you. Um, I have not eaten today, which is not the most healthy thing a human can do. Um, so please do not use me as an example. Go eat something. In fact, matter of fact, take this as a time to treat yourself to a nice cup of cold water and some food right now. Please. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Don't be like me. Yes. You are the only human in this room that has not eaten. Uh -oh. Yes. <laughs> so, Elise, what kind of tea are you having? Lady Grey. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to go with a classic. It's slightly rainy, overcast day, perfect day for some Huang Jingui, also for some Lady Grey. Yeah, honestly, I would say if I had to pick one tea to have for the rest of my life i would definitely say lady gray it's cheap it's always so satisfying like i'm never not in the mood for lady gray yeah i'm having another thing that we've already had on this show because not feeling original today i'm having the vermont maple ginger that my mom recommended to us and so yep that's what i'm sipping on today 
every day that's a cold day rainy day that's a ginger day for me i can't not have ginger on that day it's just i think it's my body <laughs> it's a must <laughs> so who is um your uh artist this um uh, week elisa i've been waiting for this one turn, turn it up, up. <laughs> okay <sighs> all right now okay hang on just watch your step here all right watch it because this is my wife that you're talking about <laughs> That's all I'm, pre- I'm, I'm prefacing take out this, this last paragraph. <laughs> um, Watch yourself here. So I'm not going to propose marriage this time. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, my artist this week is someone near and dear to my heart. One of my best friends and just one of my favorite artists in general and from school. Quetta McCaskill or Sailor Cutie on Instagram. She, like me, mostly posts to Instagram in October for Inktober, which don't call me out. I'm not doing it this year. (laughs) And when I tell you I live for this month for all of the art, specifically for her art that she posts this month, it would not be October without it. Literally. No, definitely. I can't remember the last October we haven't been able to partake in the beautiful fruit that is Quetta's labor of Inktober. Yes. She often incorporates a bit of the macabre into her work and almost always it has a message about society in it. Her work is bizarre and empowering and you can really tell she notices injustices in society and she reflects them back at us or she gives power to the oppressed and it's just amazing to see. I 100% recommend following her. You won't regret it. She's amazing. Wow, um, it's really hard to follow that up. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> but um, I'm very excited about my artist. So my artist this week is Melanie Fay. She's an insanely talented guitarist. Like if you go on her Instagram, she has a ton of videos of her singing with or just playing guitar with impressive skill. It's even more impressive once you learn that she's self-taught. And she actually first got noticed by simple videos that she would post of her sitting on her bedroom floor playing guitar and just blowing her audience's mind. The song that I am recommending by her is It's a Moot Point. And when I tell you this song is groovy. I love it so much. The melody and her voice has this airy and delicate vibe going on and the instrumentals just vibe right along with it. It's amazing. Go check it out. Alisa, I'm going to need you to tell me about our activist this week, please. Our activist this week is Martise Johnson. He is a black activist and law student at the University of Michigan. He's actually studying law to pursue racial justice and boy, does he pop off on Twitter and he's not taking names. Definitely follow him. And if you're looking for ways to perform activism in your own life, he created a Google Doc with some great resources and you can find that link on a pinned tweet on his profile. He was actually also brutalized by the police himself in 2015 under suspicion of having a fake ID, which sounds shockingly similar to an event that happened earlier this year. And I'm just glad he was able to get out of the situation with his life and that he's able to continue the work to help protect other Black lives now. Speaking of police brutality, that actually ties in really well with the news that we have this week. Y'all, we're going to be talking about the upsetting news regarding Derek Chauvin. 
Okay, so just in case that name does not ring a bell for you, that's the man who is guilty of the murder of George Floyd. And today, which we're recording this on Wednesday, he was released on a million dollar bail. I feel like there are so many things to say about this, yet there's literally not enough time left in the universe to say it. But I think that we can all feel how deeply this one hits. It is beyond upsetting. And even with this bail, he does have some restrictions, like he isn't able to have any type of contact with the Floyd family, and he can't work in law enforcement or own a gun. But justice for Floyd will always fall short. The man didn't even spend one year in prison for the crime that he committed. Not to mention, it's beyond infuriating how he was able to afford such a high bail. But this also serves as a wonderful example of what we have brought up time and time again. Performative activism and performative reform. You see, this is how easy it was for an evil man to reap little to no lasting effects of murdering someone under our current system. This is how fragile our system is and how easily it can be bent to the will of those in power who have a vested interest in maintaining oppression. But something else happened recently too. The transcripts of the Breonna Taylor's case have been released. Now, here's what that means for for us. We read what happened during that trial. We study and learn what all went down in order for that unfulfilling verdict to be reached. We may have lost, but if we are wise, we will use what happened to her to better prepare ourselves for the larger battle at hand. Those who are currently in power are never going to stop oppressing people. And as people who are fighting for change, we are never going to stop losing every now and then. But we are working in a system designed to see us fail. And with each loss, we have got to get stronger and our will must stay intact. Because if justice isn't something that we'll see in our lifetime, we need to do everything we can to make sure it will happen for those who follow us. Yeah. And that's where we're going to end this week's episode. Please check us out on Patreon, on Ko-Fi. Also, please check out our Redbubble account. You all, we have some options for you. Please check them out. Yes. Or you can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And that is where we're going to be releasing next week's topic. So be on the lookout for that. All right. And with that, bye.